Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word. Today, we're bringing you some of our best bits from 2017's London Literature Festival. This year's festival encompasses the 50th anniversary of Poetry International, an expanded children's programme, Young Adult Literature Weekender, and explores how literature and poetry can remind us of our shared humanity in a world on the brink. So sit back and listen to some of the biggest and most inspiring writers from around the globe, including Philip Bullman, Carlo Vaknalsgaard, Claudia Rankin, and other major speakers, including did happen? <laughs> well, you'll have to read the book to find out. Um, <laughs> what happened was a perfect storm. It included the mood of uh, our electorate, the torrent of resentment, grievance, fear, anxiety, and anger that uh, were felt in a number of uh, parts of our country. It was certainly the case, and I try to be as candid as I can in explaining where I think I, as a candidate in our campaign, fell short. Some of it was the mismatch between the mood that many Americans felt and the kind of intense effort I was making to explain what we could do to fix things, as opposed to giving perhaps a little more into the anger and the emotion. But it's also the case that there were very specific events and trends and cultural themes that affected it. I write about uh, sexism and misogyny, which are endemic in our society and our politics in a whole chapter called On Being a Woman in Politics. Um, And I I write about the very uh, concerted effort that has been building over many years by the Republican Party to make it difficult for people to vote, particularly African-Americans, people of color, as well as young people. The email problem, uh, a a very dumb mistake, but an even dumber scandal, which uh, took over the campaign and at the end, I think was the principal reason why I was not successful. And then, you know, the role of the manipulation of data, the targeting of uh, false information, the weaponization of information, and the role that the Russians played in doing that, all of it added up to this perfect storm. And one of the reasons I was so determined to write this is because I think there are lessons for us all to learn. I wonder, when you look back, whether you feel that that part of America which you know so well, you were born in the Midwest, you know, your father came from Scranton, Pennsylvania, you, you know, that bit that is dismissed as the Rust Belt, which you talked about endlessly, and you won primaries in 2008 in yes. Wisconsin and Michigan and so on, and they disappeared at the last. Do you think there was something that you missed about the depth of that anger? Well, I have to believe there was, because although I certainly recognized it and I spoke to it, there was a great rejection on the part of a lot of uh, voters of politics as they had seen it, experienced it. They were looking for something different. There's no doubt about that. Now, the immediate aftermath of the election, as I, I know you recall, 
there were a lot of analyses which said, well, it all came down to economic anxiety. If that were the case, then I think it would be a much shorter book and a simpler yeah. explanation. Uh, because uh, when all of the data was compiled, the so-called exit polls were reviewed, people who said the economy was their number one issue, income, jobs, those very important personal matters to them and their families, if they said that, they actually voted for me. Yeah. And so we had to look further than just the economic problems that still too many people in America suffer from. That led to the whole basket of issues under the phrase cultural anxiety. And that's something that uh, Trump was particularly adept at playing. Well, we'll come to him a little later. I mean, the, uh, the, Or not at all, which is fine with me. <laughs> No, don't you worry, you'll get a chance. You mentioned the word culture, and there has been a culture war in the country for a very long time. It affected your husband's presidency in a very profound way, as you well know. In the chapter in the book called Country Roads, you go back to these places. What strikes me about it is that, of course, there was economic frustration. But it's now evident, isn't it, that there was something deeper and that a lot of these people who had voted, you know, look at the results in West Virginia in 2008 mm -hmm. compared with last year. It wasn't just that they felt frustrated and the kids' college fees were too high. They somehow felt humiliated mm. by the system. Mm -hmm. And Trump spoke to that. Why did you get to that position? I think that there are a couple of um, possible explanations. For a number of years, and you have followed American politics closely, it wasn't just the reality of what was happening in people's lives. It was the way that was explained and exploited. We had a, uh, an assault, an all-out assault over the last years before this campaign, but really reaching a crescendo in the campaign against facts and reason and evidence. There is no such thing as an alternative fact. And uh, the, <clears throat> the, the messages that voters in places like West Virginia and elsewhere heard consistently over years, but particularly during the eight yeah, years yeah. of uh, President Obama's two terms, uh, was that there were reasons why they were not being successful. Obviously, it focused on coal mining as the, more the metaphor and symbol yeah. than the reality, because coal jobs had because been... Because the number of jobs the, the jobs had been going down small. for many yeah. years. And, there and had, everyone knew it. And people knew it, but there's a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing it emotionally. Yeah. And so when the Republicans began uh, their... Uh, chanting that uh, Obama was waging a war on coal and coal miners, and I was his chosen candidate, and I was following in his footsteps, and I do happen to believe climate change is a real problem that we have to try to deal with. Um, I, the, the ground was laid. There had been, and it wasn't by accident, it was a very deliberate strategy led by and financed by uh, special interests with commercial, religious, partisan, ideological agendas. It just came to a head in this past election in ways that we could see building, but we didn't quite believe would actually work. You've brought us on to, to one of the main questions, I think, that's been in everyone's minds. How do you deal with the fact that in your country, 
there are vast numbers of people on both sides of the divide, not just on the right, who will only listen and watch things where they know that their view will be given credence. I think this is a problem for democracy, uh, not just uh, the United States. I think it's I think there were some of those same divides in this country. Well, we are because uh, we always are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, seriously, I think that the 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 challenge that we face is both the old challenge of what we would call partisan points of view, advocacy, information, as opposed to any attempt at objective journalism, and the creation of these new outlets. You mentioned. One, obviously Breitbart, there are many others. Yeah, sure. uh, and the way that they create stories that are totally outrageous fabrications and then they migrate them to the, quote, mainstream media. What was new about this were the number of outlets doing that and the, and the role that social media played in legitimizing and delivering those stories in a very personal way. There was a concerted campaign to deliver these false stories both to hurt me, but also to create more divisions within our country. So, you know, you ha- we now know you had Russians pretending to be Americans who are not only using those identities online with, uh, you know, aided and abetted by trolls and, and bots and everything, but they were actually pretending to be Americans in real life, having phony demonstrations, and they were acting in ways to try to create inflammatory reactions on the part of people. Well, look, let's get straight to this, because you mentioned the Russians. What is your judgment now of the depth of Russian involvement in, in the election? And, you know, let's not argue about what effect it had, but the involvement. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Every day that goes by, there's more evidence of it. In my book, I write about everything we knew mm. as of the time I turned my manuscript in, and that's, I think, a, a good place to start to get the, the foundation laid. There is no doubt that the Russians were doing exactly what our intelligence and security forces have said, what investigative reporters have now discovered, what finally uh, tech companies like Facebook have admitted. So So it was destabilization. It it was destabilization, but it was aimed at both damaging me uh, and destabilizing our, our democracy. Now, they've done the same thing in Europe. And if there's any silver lining out of, you know, my election, Europeans were really put on notice, and a lot of what the Russians were doing and planning to do didn't have the same effect. Well, I was going to leave this till later, but you, you, you <clears> haven't <throat> mentioned the name of Putin now, but you've brought him into the front of, front of the stage. When you were Secretary of State, you met him, you knew him, you watched him, you thought about him, you got all the best analyses that you could get from your governmental apparatus. Tell us the truth about him. Well, that's, that, that's a whole other evening. Um, <clears throat> but, well, let's have another yeah, one. But let's anyway. have another one. Jim. Right. Um, but, right. Let, let me break that down a little bit. Yes, I dealt with him primarily as Secretary of State. In that role, it was not only my job, but uh, my responsibility uh, to speak up about human rights abuses, yes. about tampering with elections uh, that happened in the parliamentary elections in 2011, to speak out against actions in Georgia, Ukraine, and other aggressive behavior, and certainly in Syria. So I was speaking out 
on behalf of our values and our understanding of what was at stake in what Russia was doing, which was under Putin's uh, regime, you know, meant to tighten his control, his personal control, the uh, continuing oligarchic rule. Uh, so I wasn't surprised when uh, the intelligence uh, services in our country, I think, made a, a clear point that he had a personal grudge against me, but it was much bigger than that. Now, he doesn't like women very much, or at least that's been my impression. Why he, is that your impression? Uh, well, I mean, the way that he behaves around women, talks about women, uh, and his um, dismissive, condescending, slightly insulting, but this is much more about his view of his role in reasserting Russia as a major player and destabilizing Western democracies, which are his primary competition. And he has had a strategic goal that he has followed up on uh, relentlessly. And I think we've been somewhat asleep at the switch. You know, I was at Stanford uh, last week giving a speech about uh, the new uh, Cold War that will be largely run by cyber offensive uh, attacks, which we've seen in our elections. And the former president of uh, Estonia was there, uh, former president Ilvis, and he has been warning the West about this for years because Estonia was right on the tip of the spear. They were having to deal with cyber attacks yeah. five, seven years ago before any of us thought that would happen. And he basically said, the West has had enough wake-up calls. If we don't figure out how we're going to deter, contain, and frankly, impose some real consequences on Putin, uh, he's going to continue to take advantage of our open systems and to try to sow discord. You're saying it's a new Cold War, except it's quite hot. It's cold in the sense that, uh, you know, they used planes and boats and uh, yes. armies before, now they're using cyber capacity. And the goal now is very similar to what it was. And yes, we have to be willing to recognize that and not try to ignore it or diminish it. Now, to, you know, Putin really did think he was helping to elect Trump who would do his bidding. Uh, and in the third debate, I said that Trump was Putin's puppet. Yeah. Now, there's an interesting situation in our country right now. The Congress, which believes enough about what Russia did, even with Republican majorities, and to pass well enough to pass new yeah. sanctions yeah. on uh, Russia, and they are also doing some good investigative work. They're the yeah. ones pulling the screen back on Facebook and Twitter yeah. and the like. So they passed these new sanctions. Trump didn't want to sign them from all uh, accounts. Felt like he had to, but he hasn't implemented them. So in effect, he is still trying to please Putin. And I think that is both because he likes the whole authoritarian thing, the bare chest, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> and I know it's hard, it's hard to imagine, but it's a mindset. Yeah, um, I've seen the Trump yeah. bare chest. Well, it's a uh, mindset yeah. uh, that uh, kind of, uh, I think that's his aspiration. Um, when you said the puppet thing in, in Las Vegas, I mean, I was there yeah. the, in the last debate, I don't think he quite understood <clears throat> what you were saying. That was not the first time. <laughs> I must stop feeding you lines. Uh, <laughs> just, I want to get back to the world because it's quite important. But since you mentioned debates, 
If we look at the campaign, and of course the book is really the story of this extraordinary journey, when most Republicans in Washington thought he would walk it, and then he won. Now let's not get into an argument about the Electoral College. We know you got three million more votes, but you lost because he won Wisconsin, he won Michigan, and he won Pennsylvania, and that's what did it. When did you feel, or did you have an inkling at any point that he might do it? No. I was generally judged to have won those three debates, as you uh, recall. We had very good reason to believe that we were on a path that would bring us to the 270 electoral votes that our system requires. There were two dates in October that I think were the pivotal moments. On October 7th, our Director of Homeland Security, our Director of National Intelligence, for the first time, publicly said, the Russians hacked the DNC, stole emails, they are clearly trying to tip the election. It should have been an enormous story, and it should have given pause to the Republicans who we now know, led by Mitch McConnell, were threatening the Obama White House that they would call them partisan if the president told the country what we knew about what the Russians were doing. But within hours, the Hollywood Access tape happened. And then within one hour, my campaign chairman, John Podesta's emails were put onto WikiLeaks. They had been similarly stolen right. by the Russians. Now, the reason that mattered was in the world in which we now live, the Hollywood Access story was a gigantic story for about this 72 is, this is hours. Trump. This is Trump admitting to sexual assault yes. on uh, You use those words, I mean, admitting to sexual, sexual assault. assault. Yes, yeah. and, and then in the days that followed, more than a dozen women came forward sure. with yes. really graphic stories. Yes. People knew about the Hollywood Access tape, but the WikiLeaks stuff being dribbled out and being really distorted into the most bizarre accusations and stories and then being delivered to people's uh, yeah. uh, Facebook uh, pages and elsewhere. That became a source of a lot of confusion and questioning by voters. Now, fast forward three weeks, we get to October 28th when Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, 10 days before the election, 10 days before the election puts out a letter that is inexplicable. To this day, it is inexplicable. Do you, do you have any, I mean, you're very critical of him for reasons everyone will understand in the book. You believe that you would have won had it not yes, been for I, that intervention. I absolutely believe that. I mean, you asked, but, did I have an inkling? Now, I knew this was a problem. Yeah. Um, you were on hold for a week after that. Well, we were trying to break through. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we were trying to break through. But in practice, you were. But yeah, in effect, it was very difficult. And people say, well, why didn't you talk about jobs? And in fact, you do, you look at the surveys and I have one of them in yeah. the book. I talked about jobs more than anybody running by a long shot. I talked about what we were going to do to get the economy going, all of that. It was dwarfed and it, we, were be, we were beginning, I thought, to be able to make our closing argument. The Comey mm. uh, letter happened. It stopped my momentum and it critically stopped my momentum with white women voters. Before the Comey letter, I'll use this one example. I was ahead in what, what are the Philadelphia suburbs. If you're a Democrat, you have to win Philadelphia, the suburbs, Pittsburgh, and Scranton. I was ahead by 26 percentage points. I immediately started dropping after the Comey letter because I didn't blame voters, but a lot of women were really unsettled by that. You have the FBI director saying, well, you know, 
we closed this whole inquiry. It was over in July, but now we're reopening it. It's just because of... Um, well, it's because of what was found on, on a computer. And I would have been more than happy if they had asked me, I would have given permission to look at that, so would have everybody else. The objective was to throw this big monkey wrench. And yeah. the reason why it's even more hard to understand, at the same time, the FBI was conducting an investigation into the Trump campaign's association but with the Russians. Did not say a word to anybody. Comey uh, said that uh, he didn't think he could talk about the Russian investigation because it was too close to the election. <laughs> People are trying to piece all this together. Where will it go? Not clear yet. There are three different strands, let me just say. Yeah. One, the special counsel investigation is looking to see whether Mueller. yes Mueller Bob Mueller are look is looking to see if any laws were broken by anybody and you know look if there were uh, money laundering going on if there were uh, uh, foreign contributions hmm. to our campaign in or to their campaign in kind or uh, by money uh, if there was a conspiracy uh, that broke our laws whatever it might be yeah. that is really the province of the special counsel I'm not no. privy to where he is on that the congressional investigations, which have been hard to get going, but which are now uncovering a lot of the information warfare that the Russians yes. engaged in, uh, the propaganda uh, efforts, that's beginning to have real life. And, you know, Facebook finally admitted that uh, they had sites which were clearly paid for by Russian interests, Russian companies, foreign, foreign interests. And they said, well, yeah, we think that those uh, may have been seen 10 million times, but a, another study took the same information from Facebook, which we don't think is the whole story yet, and said, no, they probably were saw 340 million times. So we're beginning to peel back what happened mm -hmm. on social media, which should lead to us trying to take steps to avoid that happening again. But then the third piece of this, um, regardless of what happens in these investigations, is how do we protect our democracy going forward? Because the oh. Russians are not done. This is an ongoing threat, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book and one of the reasons why I'm talking well, uh, about uh, it. Uh, this is a very broad question, and that's one of the aspects of it. You were a very young lawyer working in the Watergate era mm -hmm. on the, the House Committee, I mm -hmm. think, in the early days of, of the Nixon disaster over 73-74. Um, looking back at it now, I can remember when the White House tapes were produced, Hugh Scott, who was then the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, minority leader, coming out in tears because he said, I couldn't imagine a President of the United States talking like this. If you put Nixon's comments next to Trump's tweet, I mean, it's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's... What's your reflection on that? What's happened in the last 40 years? You know... Uh, Take your time. Well, I will. Um, you're right. I, I was on the um, House Judiciary Committee impeachment inquiry staff. I actually wrote the memo about what an impeachable offense was, if you can believe that. And um, I... Uh, yes. And some efforts meet the criteria and some don't, is all I'll say about that. Uh, it was a bipartisan inquiry from the beginning, even though the Democrats ran the House. There were two extraordinary lawyers representing the Democrats, representing the Republicans, 
you're describing, Senator Scott, was what happened to Republicans. Yeah. You know, the, the level of distress, uh, but steel in their spine to stand up against what they saw as offenses, misbehavior that rose to impeachable Baker, uh, offenses. Howard Baker. Yeah. That was a painful moment, but in, in many ways a, a really courageous example of elected officials putting aside their partisan differences to come together for the good of the country. Right now, we have moved very far toward a much more scorched earth, zero-sum game of politics. And I, again, think that that has largely come about because of the huge amounts of unregulated money in our mm. politics, which the Constitution, as interpreted by this Supreme Court, equates with speech, if you can believe it. It's hard for people in this country or any other political system to understand how undisclosed and unaccountable vast sums of money are. And it has been used to reshape the Republican Party. The role of ideology and religion have also been used to you know, winnow out people who were willing to compromise. Compromise has become an unacceptable term. So when I look back, it was almost, even though it was a terrible time for our country, it was a time almost of political innocence. There's a very interesting question here. It's how do you get this back? If that time of, you know, a certain amount of bipartisan cooperation when it was sensible or seemed to be sensible by both sides was accepted, has gone. And if on the other hand, uh, uh, alongside that, you've got a president who using executive orders, which Obama of course used quite rightly and legally in his time, to do things with uh, appointments, with the, the removal of various you know, orders in respect to the environment or whatever it is. Um, how do you get that back? I mean, if from your perspective, and it's your perspective, uh, after four years, how much will have been done that it's very difficult to get back? Well, right now, you're, you're, it's very important what you said because it appears as though Trump is a total failure when it comes to getting anything through Congress, although they... Well, wait a minute, though. There, yeah, that, there's, there's more to the story, and yeah. that's what Jim was alluding to. You know, they are going to try to get this uh, totally bogus tax cut deal through, which is a a huge gift to uh, the wealthiest Americans, and it pays for tax cuts insofar as it does by taking money out of our healthcare programs, Medicare and Medicaid. We'll fight that as hard as we can. I hope we can defeat it uh, from happening. But at the same time that these failures in Congress demonstrate his inability to work with them, his government has been turning the clock back on regulations of all sorts, uh, doing away with overtime pay for millions of Americans, uh, going after equal pay for women, uh, unleashing special interests so that rules that had been carefully worked on for years to keep pesticides out of uh, children's foods and, and not making the dangerous uh, impact that that could have on their health, they've reversed that. They've, they're reversing so many environmental rules, so many health rules. There's all this work that's going on kind of below the radar screen, which is not getting a lot of attention, not being covered, and that's part of Trump's diversionary strategy. A lot will be reversed. I think 
My goal is to do everything I can to convince Americans to vote in 2018, to vote for Democrats in the House and in the Senate, and begin to try to reverse this tide. Well, but this brings us back. This brings us back to a fundamental question about what happened in 2016 and what's going to happen. A lot of Democrats, as far as I can work it out, don't believe they'll win the Senate next year. Now, I know it's a bad year in terms of the various seats that are up and so on. But if what you say is true, you would think that they would sweep it. Now, a lot of them don't think that will happen. And that raises, to me anyway, the question of Bernie Sanders. Now, in your book, you're pretty hard on him because you believe that he, in effect, sabotaged your campaign. Now, the problem, surely, for you is that he did create a movement. Did you feel, after it was all over, that you wished you'd had a movement like that? Well, everybody in politics wants a movement. And obviously, I beat him by four million votes, and yes. that's a pretty big... Um, I have to take some issue. I, I, I'm not angry. I'm just trying to explain what happened. And I think that the uh, Democratic Party has to believe we can win in 2018 yeah. and get up off of their rear ends and get to work and make it possible for us to win. And so when people, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, woe is us and all the rest of it, that just plays right into the Republicans' hands. Well, and I think we've got a 50-50 chance or slightly better to take back the House. I won 24 districts with Republican congressional yeah. incumbents. I think if we do what we should be doing, and that's why I've got a new group called Onward Together to recruit candidates and train candidates and get them out there and harness this grassroots uh, energy, I think we can uh, take back the House. The Senate is harder because of who's running where. However, I think we've got some real chances in places, but we won't win if we don't understand the rules that the other side is playing by. Yeah. Uh, I had the great opportunity to meet uh, the mayor of London before coming yeah. out here, uh, Mayor Khan, and I am very, very admiring of him and his leadership. And, and he said, look, I mean, you know, the, Trump was playing by fight club rules and you were playing by formal boxing rules. Yeah. There's a real shift in how campaigns are going to be waged yeah. and how you're going to capture people's attention. There's a concerted effort by Republicans, as I said earlier, to suppress the vote. And it has worked. They would not be spending all of this time and effort uh, to suppress voters, which is one of their key objectives, if they didn't believe it worked, because it does. The Russians would not be using propaganda to try to influence our election unless they believed it worked. So we can't just sit here and say, I just right. wish that would be different and we're not going to uh, okay. be able to change it. We have to change it. And I am, I am open to anybody helping us change right. that. What's the message that is required to change that? What needs to be done on the other side? Well, you have to be both... Um, visionary and uh, very incremental, very block and tackle, building from the, you know, the bottom but, up. But you almost admit, I think, in the book that you think you were too much of a policy wonk. I plead to that. It really matters what you believe in and what you want to fight for. Yeah. And when you run against someone who doesn't really agree with that and says things to provoke uh, incendiary uh, responses, you get what's going on now. The Children's Health Insurance Program, which is our effort to ensure 
kids who otherwise fall through the cracks, which I helped to start back in the 90s, hasn't been reauthorized by the Congress, that affects nine million yeah. children and their families. I think that's a big deal. So I make no apologies for actually caring about what government does yeah. and trying to get it right and deliver results for people that will make their lives better. Which brings us back to the question of why he won. What was it in the end that people wanted or that they believed they were getting from his rhetoric? Well, the people who were for him before October thought they were getting somebody who said what they believed, that there were others in our society who were getting ahead or getting advantages they were not. And usually, if you scraped a little bit, as I talk in the book, those were blacks or Latinos mm. or women. They were people who somehow were upending the order as it should be. They were never going to vote for me or any Democrat. I mean, that was just not in the cards. What turned the tide were these interventions that caused people to question whether they could support me. And if you, if you really are interested in this, in addition to what I have in the book, going in and reading about some of the analysis that's now being done, so much of the messaging from the Trump campaign, Cambridge Analytica, the Russians, the whole lot of them, was to suppress people's votes by raising doubts about me. So lying just unbelievably about me, you know, terrible lies that I was running a child trafficking ring in the basement of a pizzeria in Washington. I mean, you laugh, you laugh, but it was yeah. all over the right-wing media. It migrated into, you know, Fox and places like that. And even if they couched it, like, oh, reports have been uh, yeah. forthcoming, it was all designed to get people sitting in their kitchens or their living rooms or listening um, saying, online. Saying, oh, it's all true. Say, well, even if it wasn't true, this is disturbing. I, you know, and for women particularly, you know, you've got Trump and his uh, campaign chanting, lock her up. Yeah. You've got stolen emails being weaponized, raising terrible doubts about me. A lot of people just didn't vote. A lot of people stayed home. A lot of people were suppressed. The best, the best uh, research is that probably 100 to 200,000 voters were turned away in Wisconsin alone. So it just tipped against me at the end. And I did not believe, I thought I had weathered it. And you know, Comey comes out on Sunday and says, just kidding, uh, nothing, nothing there. The Sunday before the Tuesday election. There's just too much that went on that really created doubts in people. So I won Illinois, I won Minnesota, I yeah. lose Wisconsin. So in Illinois and Minnesota, they don't suppress the vote. Yeah. I won those two states, geographically, demographically similar, and I lose Wisconsin. Because they are turning people away as fast as they possibly can. And Russ Feingold, a tried mm. and true progressive, running to reclaim his Senate seat, was ahead the whole time in and the then, election. And at the end, he lost worse than I did, and none of the polls predicted that. So something happened, and I think it's the combination of the factors that I write about in the book. You've known uh, Trump, you know, at a distance for a long time. You were a senator from New York for a long time, and he was a big figure in New York. You were at his wedding, uh, briefly, as you say in the book, photograph taken, and then off you go. What do you think he thinks of you? Well, look, uh, 
I, I think he only thinks about himself. And I mean that. Um, so anyone who challenges him, anyone who contradicts him, become his adversary. It's a psychological need he has to dominate and demean people. It started in the Republican primary, as you remember. Mm. He went after the only woman on stage, and then he went after everybody else. And Rubio and, Just and you have insults, for example. terrible, yeah. degrading comments. Did it with people in the press, particularly women, but then yeah. it expanded uh, to a larger universe of uh, journalists. He was clearly uh, not only personally, but strategically doing everything he could to tear me down. And he had, you know, he started his campaign on that very first day going after people, and he never stopped. It ended with the election, and I, I said, look, I, when I called him that night, that horrible night, and I said, look, I... phone call. Yeah, you know, it's a tradition. You call mm. and say, you know, congratulations. I said, look, I, if I can help you, I'll be happy to help you. And my concession speech the next day, because I hoped, I really did hope, Jim, that the campaign Trump was constructed to appeal to those people who he could stoke their fears, their prejudice, and their paranoia, and that he would somehow grow into the job. That's what I hoped for the sake of the country. Yeah. So in the concession speech, I said, we have to give him a chance. And, and then I went to his inauguration, which I detail in the book, yeah. and it was a dark, divisive speech, which I, you know, which I, I term a, a cry from the white nationalist gut. During the campaign, you know, some people say I focused too much on Trump. I should have, you know, not gone after him on his qualifications and inexperience and temperament. However, I ran an ad, which was chilling, and now more so in retrospect, of a man who was in our Air Force for a number of years, who sat in one of those control centers, who was the person who would pick up the phone if the president called and said, launch the missiles against Moscow or wherever. Because he has the codes. He had, well, he, he has the codes it. and he is the single decision maker. And this man came to me in the campaign and he said, I've never been more terrified. He said, look, I'm, I'm kind of apolitical. Uh, I've supported Republicans, I've supported Democrats, but this man should be nowhere near the nuclear codes. And I did that in an ad. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought I was probably exaggerating well, it. And now we are worried, and the Congress is worried, about whether they can take that power away from Trump so that in a moment of peak, he doesn't pick up that phone and call whoever the equivalent is sitting in the control center today. Well, well are you saying that you believe that a president of the United States, in some moment of peak, as you put it, could get the codes, which he's entitled to get, make the call and no intervention could stop it. That is the way our system works. That is why I tried to raise it before and I'm raising it again on this stage. And it's why members of Congress on both sides are trying to figure out how they can contain him. There was a recent bit of reporting which said that, you know, Tillerson, McMasters, Kelly, Mattis, you know, they're all trying to figure out how they prevent this. But if that order comes, it's in the chain of command of our military, you would have to be a quite independent thinking young Air Force officer to say, well, I'm just gonna ignore the President of the United States. That's not the way it works. I never worried about that. I had big differences with you know, so many yeah, of the yeah, other sure, people yeah. who have been President during my lifetime. 
But I never worried about that. I mean, we saw John Kennedy pull the world back from nuclear war while he had military advisors saying, bomb them. He said, no, we're gonna find a way out of this. That's what you want in a president, and that's what we think is lacking right now. Let, let me just, some of these questions mm -hmm. have come in just very quickly. I think this is quite a good one. It's from somebody called Rain Lee. How do you want history to see you? I don't think about it. I, I, I am so much, I no, try so much. No, you may so not much. think about it, but how would you like history to see you? Well, obviously, you know, as someone who's been on the forefront of a lot of the big changes in my country and done my best, you know, I, I start the chapter on women in politics by referring to both uh, uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton because I say they had these really compelling personal stories. You know, my husband was poor, lost his father before he was born, first to go to college, et cetera. Barack Obama, biracial, father from Kenya, you know, really had a, an upbringing unlike anybody who'd ever run for president seriously in our country. I mean, these were really terrific narratives. And I'm this Midwestern girl from a middle-class family who uh, came of age at a time when everything began to change for women in my country. And I, I try to pull the curtain back and say, you know, I was part of a revolution. I was part of a revolution for women's rights that began in the 60s with real intensity, uh, continued up until the present day. And I became a leader of that revolution. It is the unfinished business globally in the 21st century to free women from the constraints and the strictures that hold them back, that squash their dreams, and to give every woman everywhere the chance to live up to her own God-given potential. And that's what I believe in. To hear more podcasts from the festival, listen and subscribe to Southbank Centre Podcasts on iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash Southbank Centre.